Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, being a pastor comes with a couple of things. Some things come with the territory. One of which is that people ask your opinion a lot about various issues. Uh, and sometimes it can kind of make me giggle. So I have a couple of visible tattoos. And you would probably be surprised at the number of times someone has asked me, what do you think about tattoos? Totally non-ironically. And I love to kind of quit back like, they're sinful, you're going to hell if you have one. Right, like this was a pre-conversion thing, like now that I found Jesus. It's not too uncommon for pastors or religious leaders to have tattoos, especially not, you know, since the time that I was a kid. And, and last week, uh, I uh, gave you the kind of story behind uh, this one on my wrist right here. It comes from Micah 6, 8, and, and we, we looked in, and dug into that passage, Micah 6, verse 1 through verse 8. And so this morning, what I want to do is go to the other one. Now, I promise you, this is the last time we'll do this, because I think... Two weeks is okay. Three weeks gets really narcissistic, right? Like all of a sudden, it's like pastor's body journey as a sermon series. And my wife tells me I can't go there. Um, Also, these are the only two visible ones. My wife said, look, two things, no skinny pants, and keep your shirt on at all times. And I said, thank you for that, wife. My self-confidence was like right around normal, and it needed to be bumped down a little bit. But spouses, they're, they're good for honesty, right? Um, and so, so I want to talk about this cross. You know, I, I got this cross when I uh, graduated from uh, graduate school and got my master's degree in theological studies. And like this tattoo, it kind of, at the time, represented um, for me, symbolized for me, a whole bunch of things that God had been revealing and that God was revealing to me. Um, when I got the cross and the first time I saw my parents with it, my dad was like, look, we paid a lot of money for you to go to seminary and you didn't learn that there's only one, there's only one bar in a cross. What did you, you do here? This is a, this is a big mistake. And I said, well, okay, so what Christians have done is over the years throughout history, is, is there's actually dozens and dozens of different varieties of crosses um, that Christians have used. Uh, particularly when I was getting this tattoo, I was really thinking through this because perspective is a big thing with tattoos. So uh, a cross might look good to me, but might look upside down to other people, right? And I was like, I don't know if that's something that I want to do, but reading about it, I learned even upside down crosses are a Christian symbol. Uh, there's a tradition of people who, who said, I'm not worthy to die in the same way uh, that the Lord died. And so uh, I'd, I'd be crucified upside down. Um, this is one, um, the double bars here that, that traces back at least to um, uh, the 1100s. And there are a couple of different theories as to why you have this second bar that's a little bit smaller. Probably the most common is that it represents the, the placard that was above Jesus' head when he was crucified. So if you remember the story, right, Jesus crucified, and above his head, they put kind of mockingly, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And some think that maybe it represents the um, death of Christ, and then the bigger one is the resurrection of Christ. Um, if you are ever in a Catholic context, or some of you have um, grown up in Catholic churches, you'll know there are crosses with crucifixes on them. Um, there are all types of different crosses that the Christian community has used throughout the years. And, and I think one of the reasons why Christians have sought to... Um, utilize 
the symbol of the cross, and in sometimes unique ways, is to remind us about what it really represents. You see, the cross is a subversive symbol. It is an instrument of death, of torture in the first century, an execution method for the Romans, a brutal way of enforcing imperial power. And the early Christians took that symbol and subverted it, and all of a sudden it became to stand for God's love and forgiveness and salvation. And once you start like hanging crosses up on the wall and putting them on your shirts and putting them on your body, it's easy for you to kind of lose the meaning of that, right? To, to lose the significance of that, to see just how subversive that is. And I think this is one of the reasons perhaps Christians have sought to kind of continue to explore ways to, to utilize this symbol. If we, get, if we get too comfortable with the cross, then, then we can add this second bar and we can remind ourselves, look, even while they were doing it, they were mocking him. It was through, it was through death, it was through crucifixion, it was through the worst humans have to offer. I mean, could, we couldn't imagine anything worse, God coming to us and us saying, we'll, we'll kill you. It was through that apparent defeat that God's victory comes. It was through that evil inflicted towards God that he brings us his love and forgiveness and salvation. And so one of the reasons I got this tattoo was as I was graduating, one of the things my education had did was it had opened me up to a world that I was not familiar with before. One of the things I was able to do was to study and learn about different people and periods throughout church history. And I came to realize that um, the Christian faith is a lot more diverse than I had thought growing up. I'm sure if you asked me when I was a kid, like, are there other Christians in the world? I'd be like, yes, of course, there are other Christians. But I never really quite thought about what are they like? What do they believe? How do they worship? And I certainly did not know almost anything about church history, uh, about anything that happened after the time of the Bible up until now. Like, I probably could tell you about Billy Graham and maybe give you a sentence or two about Martin Luther. That's like the evangelical starter pack of church history. And what I came to find was that that there was this whole history full of stories. It was a community to be connected to. It was resources to draw upon in which my faith could be matured, in which my wisdom could be increased, in which I could draw closer to Christ. And one of the reasons I got it was just to remind me that this is a symbol I wasn't familiar with growing up. It comes from a different place and a different time. And it's just a reminder that the Christian faith is a faith that connects us to Christians from all around the world and all throughout history. And this is something that actually, if we don't utilize, if we don't lean into, will impoverish our faith, will hinder our ability to grow spiritually. And so I want to explore that concept with you this morning. And I want to do that by inviting you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from underneath the seat around you. You can pop out your phone, however you'd like to do it. Uh, Hebrews 11, if you're in the black hardback, will be on page 1008, 1008. And we'll pick it up in verse 23. We could read all of Hebrews 11 for time's sake. We'll, we'll pick it up in verse 23. And it reads like this. By faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This is maybe the first example of parents gushing over how beautiful their children were. I don't know if you've ever seen a cute 
baby picture of someone and then the dad joke immediately comes out and you're like, what happened to you, right? I can only imagine Moses in heaven when people are meeting him are just constantly giving that to him. What happened to you, right? It was in the Bible. We were told you were a beautiful baby and look at you now. Got to be careful about what gets written about you. They were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Do you see a a pattern here? By faith, by faith, this person and that person, this situation and that situation. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? I love this paragraph. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, not Obama. This is a a biblical character. Samson, Jephthah, David, of Samuel, the prophets, who through faith, watch the language here, (laughs) conquered kingdoms enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. This is pretty epic. This is like Marvel-level movie epic. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sworn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Another very interesting phrase here, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the book of Hebrews is a sermon. We're not quite sure who the author is, but it's, it's structured pretty clearly in an organized way. It's, it's, a, it's a sermon that he's giving to a group of people, and the, the main message is pretty clear. He repeats it over and over and over again, and the message is this. Keep going. Endure in your faith. Despite whatever persecution you might be facing, despite whatever suffering you're going through, despite whatever disappointments or discouragements are presently in your life. He says, don't, don't fall off the cliff. Don't stop making progress. Keep going, keep going, keep going. You see that message here. He talks about the endurance Christ had. He says, run the race. Keep your eyes on Jesus, perfecter and founder of our faith. And he says, run, keep running. 
And notice the instructions. He says, get rid of anything that might hurt this race. Get, any, get rid of anything, any, any kind of clothing that might be a weight. Move any obstacles out of the path. Get rid of any sin which clings so closely. I love here that he, he mentions sin, but he also just mentions every weight. Like there are two ways of looking at the Christian life and two ways from this passage. One would be we could go through life and we could ask ourselves, is this sinful? Like is a certain decision or habit or lifestyle, is this wrong for us to do? Another question we could ask though that perhaps would be more expansive, would ask more of us, would be, is this helpful? Not just is this wrong. Sometimes there are things that aren't necessarily wrong that still aren't helpful for us. Is this helpful? Does this, does this make me lighter? Does this make me more capable of running the race, of experiencing God's presence, of hearing from the Spirit, of, of embodying his love and justice and mercy? Does this help me get closer? Or does this keep me stuck or make it harder, keep me farther away? One of the motivations, one of the reasons he gives for how we are to run this race, he says, is this great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, he's referencing chapter 11. Since you and I, the church, are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, go do this. Now, when he, he mentions witnesses, he's talking about all these people that he's listed off in Hebrews chapter 11. And it kind of reads like a hero list of the scriptures. A whole bunch of well-known characters in the scriptures who, who exhibited faith in God and are kind of great examples for us. And when he calls them witnesses, it's, it's likely he's not talking about them looking down and watching us as much as he's saying that, that they bear witness to what it means to follow God. They bear witness to what faith looks like, the character and shape and flavor that it has. They continue to to tell us and inform us and provide value as we run towards Christ. You see, our eyes stay fixed on Christ, and yet for the author of Hebrews, that isn't a contradiction with also saying, but look at all these other people. Look at this hero and that hero and this hero and that hero, and this will help you keep your eyes focused on Christ. Surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, the author of Hebrews is saying they, they speak to us. If we had more time earlier in chapter 11, um, there's an interesting phrase mentioned about Abel. Do you remember Abel from the very beginning of the, the scriptures in Genesis, Cain and Abel? The scriptures say here in, in Hebrews that Abel, though dead, still speaks, which is very interesting just on, on its face value and also interesting because the narrative we get in the Bible about Abel is very short and small. Like, it's not like another character where we actually have a lot of his speech recorded. And you're like, well, obviously, right? Because it's written down and we can still listen to it. Like, Abel barely says anything. And yet, though he's dead, the, the, the scriptures say he's still speaking to us. If we have ears to hear, if we're paying attention to it, he can bear witness to us. There's a valuable resource for us to tap into that we might grow spiritually and be more faithful. Now, these individual stories that are mentioned, these individual heroes are helpful. I think all of us can relate to some of the situations that they were in, probably not at that scale, right? But, but we, can, we can see kind of what they went through and be encouraged by it and learn lessons from it. We can see kind of how they modeled faith and try to model that after them. Abraham is mentioned before the, the part we picked up in, and, and the, the story of Abraham is one that, that I, I, can, I can relate to. I think all of us can kind of relate to this, particularly because Abraham 
not only has to respond to God's promises with faith, but he does so with a partner, with Sarah, his spouse. Now, what I didn't know before I got married was that one of the many beautiful things marriage brings is an audience for all of your dumb, okay? I don't, no one told me about this, but when you're single, you do a lot of dumb things, but it mainly stays yourself, right? Like if you're, if you're good about it, the rest of the world doesn't really have to be in on the secret. But as soon as I got married, all of a sudden, someone was witnessing all of my, my dumb, right? And then they were able to, to, to see that and to, to call that out. Um, Abraham and Sarah, they both in their own ways struggle with God's promise, struggle to respond faithfully. And I can only imagine the kind of conversations that they had to have and go through. So Abraham is told by God to circumcise himself. I can't imagine what that conversation is like. Abraham comes home. Sarah's like, what'd you do today? He's like, well, God told me. And Sarah's like, God told you. Okay, look, what if God told you to kill our oldest child? And Abraham's like, well, about that too. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can relate to to, to having a partner and, and maybe being on different pages in terms of hearing from God. I can relate to having to, to go through those communication um, issues. I, I still haven't lived down the, the time when it had just finished raining and I, I was going to go on a walk and my lovely wife uh, said uh, as I was going out, be safe. And instead of thanking her for her thoughtfulness and kindness, I decided to use it as a chance to mock her. And I said, be safe. Oh, I'll try my best to be safe. I've been walking most of my life and I'm getting pretty good at it now. And then 10 minutes later, I had to call her and say, you're not allowed to say anything for 30 to 45 minutes, but I busted my knee, I fell, I can't move, and I need you to get in the car and to come pick me up. The amount of laughter that I heard, you would not, you not, I was like, stop laughing, it's still bleeding, come get me. But there's something more important or as important as relating to these stories and characters individually. You see, all of these characters are part of a, a larger narrative, a part of a larger story. They're not just individuals that we can kind of take out of context, even though we can kind of without any context relate to them. It, it's also important for us to see the larger story. All of these people are people that God has called. They're the people of God. They're all people that play a part in God's redemptive mission. A mission that doesn't stop when the Bible's finished being written. It, it continues out through what we'd call church history. The first century, the first few centuries, the Middle Ages, the Reformation. I'd imagine if the author of Hebrews was writing this list down today, he'd include some other names. This is just what he had available to him at the time. We might not consider it this way, but, but these Old Testament characters in their own way are just the very beginning of church history. This is a story that God's people are involved in. This is a community that they belong to. And I think it's important for us to recognize this, this kind of grand narrative. Again, the phrases used about them, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. And then I start to think to myself, how do I compare to these people? Like, I mean, how could I be included in a paragraph like this? Like, I went to church a lot. <laughs> Mainly, mainly did okay. I mean, we're told of these people earlier in, in chapter 11. If you want to look with me, it's right here in verse 16, that because they desired a better country, a heavenly one, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What a statement. 
God is not ashamed to call them his people. This is one of the things I struggle with personally. Is thinking that like God doesn't have at least a little shame about his people. I certainly do. Or like like if I, I were to tell someone like, hey, I follow Jesus and God is in heaven, like a little cringing. Like, why don't you add a qualifier? Like sometimes to the best of your ability. But if you look even at these these heroes of the faith, that they're all flawed people. They all make big mistakes, some major mistakes, some mistakes that would disqualify them from ministry for you and I. We'd be like, this person should never get on stage again. This person should never lead a, a Sunday school class again. You have Noah, who's mentioned in this list. Noah is counted as righteous because of his faith. If you read the narrative in Genesis, as soon as the flood is over, he goes to like Jersey Shore for a whole chapter. Like he, he falls he, blackout drunk and something weird happens with this kid and we're not told much more than that, right? But this is Noah. And then we got Moses, the beautiful baby, Remember Moses, the, the murderer? Perhaps it's not despite these big flaws, mistakes, that God is not ashamed of them, but, but perhaps maybe even because of. You see, God, God tells us why he's not ashamed here, and the answer is not because they were so great. He's, he's not ashamed because he's got something prepared that will answer what they were longing for. He says, they wanted another country, and I've got it. And so even in their mistakes, even in their failures, this is going to bring me more glory and praise. This is going to reveal my beauty even more because what they were after this whole time, I've, I've got prepared for them. I'm going to come through with. I'm going to fulfill. And so he's not ashamed to be called their God in chapter 2 of Hebrews, we're told a similar thing. Jesus is not ashamed to call you and I his brothers and sisters. I think this is important. I think it's important for us as the church to recognize that we belong to this community and we belong to this story. What happens if we try to divorce ourselves from history, from the church's history, from the church community, we lose out on valuable resources. We, we kind of cut off at the tap all kinds of wisdom, all kinds of, of ways that, that we might have witness bore to us about how to more faithfully follow Christ. And this is something that I think will inevitably impoverish our faith. You see, as Christians, we don't just individually repent of our sins and, and place our faith in God and have our individual relationship with God changed. This is true, and this is the language we usually use in conversion, but perhaps we would be served well to also use social language when we talk about conversion. In conversion, you are adopted into a new family. You're baptized into a community. Your citizenship has been transferred to a new kingdom. And as human beings, a big part of our identity, how we get a sense of identity, has to do with where we come from, who we belong to, what community, what story are we a part of. Who do we look up to? Who are our heroes? You can, you can see this pretty clearly in the way that nations work versus the way that the church works. And, and so if you've got an 18-year-old who graduates high school 
in our kind of American culture, they also grew up in the church, I can probably almost guarantee you that they're more committed to America than they are to Christ in the church. They're probably more loyal to America than they are to Jesus. Just proof of this, right? Uh, I know a lot of kids that grew up in Christian homes and decided not to be Christian as they grew up. I know of no one that's grown up in an American home and decided not to be American. America, like most nations, is pretty good at enculturing its young ones. And this is not necessarily a, a bad thing. I know sometimes when I talk about America, people are like, oh my gosh, we stopped doing this kind of anti-America stuff. I can just promise you this. If I lived in Australia or Canada, I'd be saying the same things. It's not necessarily a, like an American thing. In fact, I think the church could learn a lesson here. How does this work? Well, our nation makes sure we understand we're part of a community. We're part of a story. There's a legacy for us to fulfill and live up to, a responsibility, if you will. There are heroes that are lifted up to us, that are modeled to us. All of this works very powerfully at forming a sense of identity and belonging. Just two ways, as an example, we teach history. We teach American history. We teach state history, a little bit of world history. But you know about what's happened. You know about the story. In the church, particularly in the kind of Protestant evangelical church that I grew up in, there's a severe lack of any, any even an attempt to pretend like we desire to learn or teach about church history. And so when I, when I went off to college and started learning these things, my life was being enriched, and I wanted to memorialize that. There are people from a different time, and from different places that have all these things to teach me, that have all, these, all this wisdom to impart to me. And then you teach history, and, and you also you have heroes. If you were to ask yourself, who, who, who are the heroes in American culture? I would say this. You, you go to a baseball game, a sporting event. Who is it who, when they are presented, everyone stands up, and cheers, roar of applause for. Who is it that whatever political party you are representing, you are loud and vocal about your support of? It is our soldiers. And it's easy to understand why, right? They're risking everything. They're, they're risking their, their very lives to, to kind of protect the identity, security of, of our nation. And again, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I've, I mean, I've been at that sporting event and the veterans come out onto the field or a memorial video is played for someone who has lost their life and you can just feel it within you, can't you? I mean, I can kind of feel a visceral pride about being an American. I can feel a connection to these people. And I'm not like the most like, oh, I love nations person that you'll ever meet, right? But, but it like happens without me even trying. Like when I travel abroad, there's something about being an American that even if I'm like, oh, I'm not always so proud of decisions our nation has made, I'm still kind of like, huh, yeah, I'm an American. <laughs> now, I've done nothing to deserve that, right? I've contributed very little to the American society. I have not served. But I, I knew when I went to Kenya during a dangerous time in their nation's history that, that people would think twice before messing with me because the, at least Perception was he's got the backing of the uh, American military, American government. He's an American citizen. That gave me comfort. That's some 
some pride in it. My shoulders were a little broader as I walked. This is what could and should be happening for us as Christians. And in the place of soldiers, Christian heroes would be saints. People who have lived faithful lives, even despite at times making big mistakes, even despite being flawed people. The ultimate Christian hero in church history is not too dissimilar from, from American culture, and that's the martyr. It's the one who gave up their very lives for their faith in Christ. So we learn about these people. We, we're inspired by their stories. And we can quickly realize that, look, there's, there's very little that we are trying to deal with as Christians that's not already been wrestled with. Like maybe a couple things, just because of technology, but are, are big things. Like we're not the first to ask these questions or to wrestle with them. What do we do when we feel far from God or depressed? We're in this dark night of the soul. Guess what? This has been happening. People have walked this road. They've left us breadcrumbs. What do we do when we live in a world of conflict and violence and yet we feel called to embody the peace that Jesus commands of his disciples? Well, we're not the only people who have ever had these questions, who have ever had these struggling loyalties. How do we live simply in a world of greed? Again, this is not the first time this has ever happened. How do we know what to believe, this interpretation or that interpretation, this doctrine or that doctrine? We're not the first to be debating these things. Now, it doesn't mean that you can necessarily find the right answer or find it very clearly in church history, but it does mean at the very least you don't have to start from scratch. Imagine trying to learn math and build the whole system up from the ground. Like, assume that no one throughout history has ever tried to learn math before. They've not written things for us. They've not established certain rules for us. We never really make any progress. This is, this is kind of what it's like when, when, when a Christian just assumes that the entirety of faith is just me and Jesus and, and my small context of my life. And so I've got a question. I've got an a, a, a issue with something I'm reading in the scriptures. I've got an experience that I'm going through. And I'm kind of just thrown on myself to try to figure this out. I mean, imagine the resources that we're, we're missing out on here. The wisdom that could be imparted. The ability to have weight taken away from us. Get rid of sin which, which clings so closely to us. This is one of the reasons at the church we've tried over the years to follow more closely the liturgical calendar, the church calendar. Because much like the American calendar, right, there are holidays. And these holidays help us focus and help us learn. And, and we don't do much of this, right? But, but actually, if you were to look at the liturgical calendar, there are feast days of specific saints. In the same way, we have a presence day, and we remember this president and that, that war hero and, and this national figure, and Martin Luther King Jr. Day, right? There are Christian versions of these. And then you, you also have the, the issue of like spiritual growth, discipleship. One of the reasons I think that evangelicals, Protestant evangelicals, sometimes struggle with becoming spiritually mature is because we try to recreate the will by ourselves. Like throughout history, there have been these communities who have committed to learning and following these ways of faithfulness to grow in their 
spiritual maturity. You have these whole monasteries, these whole communities with very specific practices that have been put forth trial and error over time, proven to help give results. And instead of saying like, hey, let's learn from the Franciscan community or the Ignatian community and these very time-tested ways of growing spiritually, learning how to pray, things like that, I'm just going to wing it. (laughs) And maybe it works better for you, but it never really worked that well for me. It, It didn't. And I didn't join a monastery, but I didn't pick a hero a couple of years ago. There was a guy, Ignatius of Loyola, uh, Loyola, very interesting guy to me. He started one of these communities, and there are specific prayers and types of praying and ways of discerning the Spirit. And what I found was by submitting myself to that, I was actually tapping into this very deep, history of wisdom. Like I was able to do something without having to try to create it on my own. I was, uh, it was like a supercharged spiritual growth. I jumped over a bunch of weights and obstacles that I'm not sure I would have ever jumped over instead of. You and I as Christians, we belong to this grand community. We belong in this epic story my invitation to you this morning is to avail yourself of those resources. Let them bear witness. Learn about church history. Now look, this is something that's just going to take probably most of our lives, right? It's a lot of time and a lot of people, a lot of things. You're not going to become an expert in it right away. So maybe just like pick a period. Pick a century. Pick a place. And then, because we're living in the golden age of technology, what you'll find real quickly with a couple of Google searches is there's a lot of great resources. There's a lot of well-done videos and, and courses that you can, can you take. I invite you to, to, to learn some church history. And then I invite you to, to maybe think about picking a hero. And it could be someone in Scripture I've got friends who who just really kind of relate to one character in Scripture. And and sometimes we think, well, shouldn't it just be Jesus? I mean, by focusing on someone else, are we somehow diverting our attention from Jesus? But I think you can just follow the logic here in Hebrews. No, you can actually funnel yourself towards Jesus by having a model, by having someone that you relate to. Garrett over here, my my brother, is all into St. Francis. And we were having a conversation a few weeks ago, and he was like, look, this is not kind of what I was brought up in. And I don't know, like, will you tell me if I'm doing something wrong? Like, if I'm too into this? Like, if, you know, I should, like, focus more on just reading the Bible, not learning about Francis and Franciscan community and their disciplines? I was like, no, I think you're on to something, man. I think this is what we should, should all be doing. I think we could only be better equipped to know and follow Christ faithfully, if we tapped into these resources, if we had these heroes, if we learned, discussed, integrated the wisdom, applied it to our own lives. And that's my invitation to you this morning. We'll come to the table in just a minute, like we do every week. We practice open communion, which means it's not a requirement to be a member of our church. There's no quiz to take or test to pass. But the table 
represents this type of unity, the shared history that we've been talking about. We come to the table, and the table, we all have a place. And not because we've deserved it or we've earned it. As we come to the table, we, we might remember this, this verse, that God is not ashamed to call us his God. God's not ashamed, Jesus is not ashamed for you to have a seat at this table. There's not a part of him holding back. Like, I don't know, maybe they could wait a week. And at this table we come and, and we realize we're not the only ones coming to the table. I'm with you and you and you and you and you and you. And I'm also coming to the table with Christians throughout history. Because one of the, the key characteristics of faith in the book of Hebrews is that death is not able to conquer it. Though dead, they still speak. We still have this communion with the saints of old. And we come to the table with our brothers and sisters around the world. Coming to the table is one way where we, we profess that we're part of a bigger story than ourselves. We're part of a bigger people than we often realize. And the more we can lean into that, I think, the more we'll be better equipped to know and love and follow Jesus.